This is Alan Johnson, pastor of Old Peachtree Presbyterian Church in Duluth, Georgia. The Bible is God's Word. It describes itself as living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. Therefore, any encounter with the Bible is a momentous thing because it never leaves us unchanged. My prayer for you as you hear this message is that the Holy Spirit will use it in your life to inform your mind, to feed your soul, and to help you grow in your faith in Christ. I'd like to invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1, we'll look, we'll look this morning at verse 2, although we're going to read verses 1 through 7. Romans 1, it's page 939 in the few Bibles. Hear the word of God. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, concerning his son, who was descended from David according to the flesh, and was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the Spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ, our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations, including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. To all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints, Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. We give thanks to the Lord for his word. Let's pray together. Father, open our eyes to the scriptures. We pray, Lord, that your spirit who inspired these words and has preserved them to this day would give us minds to receive the truths that you have here. And give us hearts, Lord, that are receptive and warm toward you. Father, that in the study of your truth, we would worship you. Lord, we would repent of those things we need to repent of, believe those things we need to believe, obey those things we need to obey, and so live as your people. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. If you have watched Antiques Roadshow much at all, you know that the value of an antique is increased by having good provenance. That is, having a good history. That its history is known, where it came from, who owned it, where they got it from, and ultimately back to who it was who built it or painted it or otherwise created it. If, if the provenance is unknown or sketchy, it makes it difficult to determine if it really is valuable or not. But where that's known, then it's perhaps traced back to a great furniture maker or instrument maker, great artist who painted the picture, and its value is all the higher. Well, as we enter into this study of Romans, we see that Paul is very much concerned about the gospel. In fact, you could say that the gospel is the theme of Romans and certainly the theme of these opening verses of Romans. But Paul also realizes that he's writing with church that largely does not know him. There are those he knows in the church at Rome, but this was not a church 
that he planted, and indeed it seems to have arisen out of the synagogue as the gospel spread by word of mouth, uh, it's not a church he's been to and visited uh, before. And so he realizes that many of them don't know him. Those who have heard of him may have received misinformation about him. And so he's very careful as he presents to them who he is and what he's about to demonstrate something of the provenance, something of the history of this message, this gospel that he preaches, because he wants to assure them that is the real thing. Last week, as we started this series of studies, we looked at what, what Paul said about himself, how he saw himself, and therefore how he presents himself to the, himself to the Christians in Rome. We saw in verse 1 that he sees himself as a servant of Christ. He belongs to Christ. He's been bought by Christ, and he is entirely at Christ's disposal. That Christ has called him to be an apostle, an authoritative ambassador of Christ in the church, to preach the gospel, set apart for the gospel. He's consecrated to this task of making the gospel known. And we said last week, as we looked at that, that while these may apply to Paul in unique ways, there are no apostles in this sense today, uh, nevertheless, these do inform us to some degree to how we should see ourselves as servants of Christ, certainly called to be servants of Christ in various callings to which God has called us, and uh, that we too uh, are set apart for the gospel, to believe it, to live it, to make it known in the world around us. Well, as we come to verse 2, Paul takes pains here to emphasize uh, that he is not making this gospel up, that this is not some novelty, this is not something new that has popped up out of nowhere that he is trying to preach, but in fact this thing has roots. This gospel that he proclaims goes way back. In fact, he's so concerned to emphasize that point that he mentions this even before he mentions that the gospel is, as he says in verse 3, concerning God's Son. And so he takes great pains here in this verse to emphasize where the gospel came from, that it has its roots in the Old Testament. And so let's look at verse 2. We're going to again focus pretty closely on these opening verses because there's, there's a great deal here that Paul says. And so we're concentrating today on verse 2. So first he talks about what was promised. He says it's promised beforehand. Well, what was promised? Well, the word which, the first word in the ESV, which he promised beforehand, uh, tells us it's a relative pronoun. What's it relative to? What, what's it pointing to? Well, it's pointing back to verse 1. Wait, Paul says he is set apart for the gospel of God, which God promised beforehand through his prophets. So what was promised? Well, the gospel. Paul is saying that this gospel that was promised was not something that's promised now, but it was promised beforehand, going way back. But what is it? Well, we've said the gospel, the word gospel means good news, good tidings, good news, uh, an announcement. That is the good news that Paul, as an apostle, as this herald or uh, proclaimer of the gospel, is called to make known. Now, before we really move off of that, and it does appear in verse 2 by virtue of that word which, which refers to the gospel, I want us to think about it again just briefly. The gospel is good news biblically. The Bible, of course, describes how through Adam and Eve, uh, mankind was plunged into sin, separated from God, under the judgment of God. 
But the Old Testament is full of the gospel, the good news of God's grace, of God's mercy, and God's providing a substitute to die in the place of the sinful and judgment-deserving sinner. That's good news. The Old Testament is full of good news. I'm going to look at that in a little more detail in just a few minutes, but we just need to note that, that the gospel was promised beforehand. Now, it wasn't in its fullness in the Old Testament, but it was promised there. It's an evidence there, and we need to recognize that, that it's good news biblically. What we also need to ask, is this to you good news personally? Because it really doesn't matter what the word gospel means, that it means good news, if that good news does not apply to you personally. Because it's not just mankind that is plunged into sin. It's you. It's me. You know, that the Bible confronts us with the bad news of our fallenness, of my sinfulness, of your wickedness before God. Certainly in outward behavior and speech, certainly in the thoughts and attitudes of our hearts, we can only come up with bad news. But it's in the context of that bad news that the gospel is good news, that it gives us what we need, that it gives us the righteousness we need to be acceptable to God. It gives us atonement, payment for our sins that we otherwise would be suffering for in hell. And it transforms our hearts so that we're changed We're different. We're new creatures, new creations because of God's grace. Dear friends, that's good news. And we don't want to just think of the gospel as something out there that's good news. Is that good news to you and to me? Have you received Christ? Is he good news to you? Because, dear friends, if Christ is not personally good news to you and that you have repented of your sins, believed and followed him, Jesus is above all bad news to you because he is the king. Because he is the judge, because he is the one before whom you will stand and give an account. And you either are covered by his blood, clothed in his righteousness, or you're not. And you will give an account to him for your sins. And you will suffer forever in hell what he suffered for his people, all who believed in him, on the cross. So before we move on beyond that word which, which refers to the gospel of God, you need to ask yourselves, Not just is it good news, but is it good news to you? And so that's what was promised. The good news, the gospel that is embodied in and fulfilled in Christ, but was certainly promised beforehand in the Old Testament. So then let's ask the question, when was that promised? What was promised? Well, the gospel, when was it promised? It was promised, Paul says, beforehand, which he promised, God promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. It was promised beforehand, before now, before all of this happened, before Paul, even before Christ was here, through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. Now, we hear prophets, and any number of things might come to mind. Of course, the prophets, uh, in, a, in a strict sense, in a narrow sense, we tend to think of books like Isaiah, which we read from earlier, uh, or Amos, or Hosea, Micah, uh, as the prophets. 
These, these books of the Old Testament that we, we refer to as the prophets, the major prophets, the, the, the long ones, major only because they're so much longer, Isaiah, Jeremiah, for instance, Ezekiel, uh, or you think of the, the minor prophets. You know, that might, might just be a page or a little more in your Bible. Uh, Nahum, they're very brief. They're minor not because they're unimportant, they're just a lot shorter. Uh, we tend to think of books of the Bible as the prophets. Or we might think of people like Isaiah, uh, people who have a book of the Bible that they wrote and that bears their name, Isaiah, Jeremiah, or prophets uh, who don't have a book of the Bible named after them, yet occur uh, someone like Elijah, Elisha, prophets of the Lord. They don't have a book that bears their name, but they were prophets in, in the Old Testament. So we think of books that are the prophets. We think of people who were prophets. But, you know, as you look at the scriptures, you, the, the word prophets can also be a bit more broad than that. In fact, major minor prophets, the way we tend to think of it, is a little bit different than the, the old Jewish reckoning of the Old Testament. You know, they, they divided it into uh, the law, the prophets, and the writings. Um, you're familiar with the word the Torah, referring to the law. Uh, the, the other two parts would be the Nevi'im, the prophets, and the Ketuvim, the writings. Uh, and in fact, some refer to, this is, you get this a little bit in seminary and other places, referring to the Old Testament as the Tanakh, which is sort of an acronym of uh, the, the Torah, uh, Nevi'im, the Ketuvim, the law, the prophets, and the writings. Well, their reckoning of the prophets was broader. For example, First Samuel would be considered one of the, the prophets, the writings, the law, the prophets, and the writings, those, those categories. So you can consider it even more broadly, and in fact, the scriptures do. Uh, when Moses, for example, in, in Deuteronomy 18, is talking about the Lord sending another prophet, like me, Moses saw himself as a prophet. He was viewed as a prophet because he spoke the word of the Lord, um, which, of course, that, that, that helps us understand when people came to Jesus and said, you know, or to others said, are you the prophet? Who is to come? Who is to come? They're thinking of Deuteronomy 18. So we can consider prophets a little more broadly than we typically do. And in fact, it's quite possible that uh, when Paul uses the word the prophets, he has a very broad understanding of it as simply being the Old Testament. That this was promised beforehand in the Old Testament itself. That's the most broad way to consider that term, the prophets. Uh, but he's talking about what was foretold, what was spoken of in advance, what, what came before in the Old Testament that, is, that, that points to what is being fulfilled in Christ. So when was it promised? He says, well, it was promised beforehand in the prophets. But where? We can think of just a few ways that uh, uh, that was done. Paul probably doesn't have any specific passages in mind, but there are any number we could think of, including the one we read earlier. Uh, in, I, in Isaiah 52, 53, but think of uh, Genesis 3. Right there, where the Lord confronts Adam and Eve in their sin, the Lord promises to Eve that, uh, the, that her seed would crush the head of the seed of the serpent, typically seen as the, the first announcement of the good news of the gospel. That there would be this enmity or hostility between the seed of the woman, the seed of the serpent. And though the seed of the serpent would injure the seed of the woman, the seed of the woman would crush the seed of the serpent. Which, of course, we would see as pointing forward to that 
victory of Christ, which appeared at the time to be anything but a victory at the cross, and yet was the victory of Christ, the seed of the woman, over over the seed of the serpent, over the devil. You think, for example, of um, promises, a whole class of them, the great Christmas prophecies that we think of when we celebrate the birth of Christ, uh, passages like Micah 5 that promise that he would be born in, in Bethlehem. Uh, and so forth. And we'll have a son, name him Emmanuel, which means God with us. You can think broadly of the whole sacrificial system in the Old Testament. What's that there for? Well, it's quite plain that the, 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 the people can't keep the law, and the sacrificial system does a couple of things. It reminds the people of the, the wages of sin is death, the justice of God, but it also shows them the grace of God and that the one that suffered the death was not the sinner himself or herself, but the sheep, the goat, a substitute who dies in the place of the sinner, pointing forward to Christ. Think even in the offices of the Old Testament, the the prophet who declares the word of God uh, and speaks uh, uh, the word of the Lord of things that would come in, in advance as well, uh, the priest who would offer the sacrifices for himself and for the people, and then the king who ruled over Israel. And all those three offices are in effect in the Old Testament, but they all point to and are fulfilled in Christ, who carries out the offices of prophet in declaring the word of God. In fact, was it the word of God incarnate? Uh, was God incarnate? And priest in offering up himself as a sacrifice for the sins of his people. And king in that he rules. He's at the right hand of the Father. He will reign until every enemy is crushed under his feet as his footstool. And so you think of the Old Testament in particular passages, but even in the, in the broad uh, swath of the history of the Old Testament and the structures and the systems of the Old Testament, you see that they are pointing forward to the gospel, pointing forward to Christ, that they are that promise which Christ is the fulfillment. So what was promised? Well, the gospel was, the good news. Where was it promised? In the Old Testament, both in its detail and in its broader sweeps, as you, you look at the, the Old Testament. Well, then we come to this last part of this verse, and we ask, where was it promised? When was it promised? Beforehand, through the prophets, through the Old Testament, considered largely. Uh, but, but where? Notice, notice what Paul says. Which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy scriptures, in the Holy Scriptures. Now, I've already mentioned a few places in the Old Testament, certainly many more we could think about, but as we think about that, what we want to recognize is that Paul is pointing us back to the Word of God. You know, this this doesn't come through some mysticism, it doesn't come through some vision God gives us now, but these things are written down and recorded in Scripture, Holy Scripture, to make us aware of what is to come. Now, when Paul wrote this, there, there was no New Testament as, as we have it today. For them, the Bible was the Old Testament. And so instead of going back and looking at Old Testament passages, what I want us to do as we think about what Paul says, these were promised beforehand in the Holy Scriptures, is to look at it from a, the perspective of a first century Christian, of, of some of these that we read, their writings in the New Testament. And let's look at how they used the Old Testament, what they drew from it. Uh, exhibit A would be uh, the Apostle Peter. Think of Acts chapter 2, uh, the day of Pentecost, the pouring out of the Holy Spirit. 
in a real sense, the birthday of, of the, the new covenant people of God. Because with Acts chapter 2, the last piece for the New Testament church has fallen into place. Christ has lived, he has suffered, he died, he was raised on the third day. Now he has ascended to the Father, and in Acts chapter 2, in fulfillment of his promise, he sends to them the Holy Spirit who would help them remember everything Jesus said, who would empower them for the ministry that Jesus called them to, and would work in the hearts of those who hear them to make their ministry effective. If the, if the Holy Spirit is not there and working, acts would not have happened. We need to recognize that. This was not because Peter was so great or Paul was so great. It's because God was using them. The Holy Spirit was working through them as Christ is building his church. But we look at Acts chapter 2. It's interesting to study Peter's sermon there. But basically, he refers to three different sections of the Old Testament. He refers there, uh, perhaps you could say his base text is uh, from Joel. Joel chapter 2, uh, verses 28 through 32, uh, quoted there in Acts 2.17 and following, and it's indented. You know, you can kind of see where it is there. Uh, and Paul, and uh, Peter refers to that to explain the, the pouring out of the Spirit. What's happening? They're not drunk, these people who are speaking in these different languages, but rather this is a fulfillment of an Old Testament promise of the coming of the Holy Spirit. Uh, Peter also refers at length in verse 25 uh, to Psalm 16 uh, and cites that psalm as explaining the uh, work of Christ, what God did in Christ Jesus. Uh, he says in verse 25, David says concerning him, concerning Jesus, and he quotes from Psalm 16. And then later, Peter quotes in verse um, 34, 35, from Psalm 110, verse 1, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Most frequently quoted verse of the Old Testament that you'll find in the New Testament is that messianic promise. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. So when it says it was promised in the Holy Scriptures, and Peter is declaring now that the gospel, the work of Christ and the power of the Spirit, he's drawing from the Old Testament. That's what he has. That's his Bible. He preaches the gospel from Joel, from Psalm 16, from Psalm 110. Preaches Christ from those passages. Think of uh, Paul, of course. Acts chapter 9 is Paul's conversion. We referred to that recently. And it ends uh, there as Paul is in Damascus. Uh, and it says that he is confounding the Jews by proving that Jesus was the Messiah, the Christ. Of course, that baffled everybody because he was such a vehement opponent of the church but now uh, he's preaching Christ, and now he's proving that Jesus is the Christ. How does he prove it? Does it say? But I think what is implicit, what is assumed, is he's proving this from the Old Testament Scriptures. Where else would he prove it? How else could he prove it? He's going back to the Old Testament Scriptures and showing how those point to Jesus, how they were fulfilled in Jesus, and how it shows that Jesus is the long-awaited promised Messiah. Where does Paul go to talk about Jesus? He goes to the Old Testament. And then in Acts chapter 13, they're on their first missionary journey. They're in uh, Pisidian Antioch. And uh, in uh, Acts 13, verse 32, 
Uh, Paul says, and we bring you the good news, the gospel, right? That what God, that what God promised to the fathers, this he has fulfilled to us, their children, by raising Jesus. As also it's written in the second Psalm, you are my son, today I have begotten you. And he goes on to quote more Old Testament scripture, including Psalm 16, by the way, uh, as he's t- talking to the people. Notice what he says. It sounds very similar to what he begins Romans with. He says, what God promised to the fathers, this he has fulfilled to us, their children, by raising Jesus. What he promised beforehand. Paul, in his ministry, is proclaiming Jesus as the fulfillment of the Old Testament. There are others as well. Philip, in Acts chapter 8, remember he encounters the Ethiopian eunuch or Ethiopian official who's going in his chariot, and the Ethiopian is reading from Isaiah 53. And it quotes where he's, where he's reading. Like a sheep, he was led to the slaughter. Like a lamb before its shearers is silent, he opens not his mouth. In his humiliation, justice was denied him. Who can describe his generation? For his life is taken away from the earth. And, and the Ethiopian eunuch is, is struggling with this. And he said, who's, who's the, the writer talking about? Is he talking about himself? Is he talking about somebody else? And Peter, or rather Philip, there in, in Acts chapter 8, we say, it reads, Philip opened his mouth, and beginning with this scripture, Isaiah 53, he told him the good news about Jesus. The gospel from Isaiah 53. Of course, Jesus himself. In that familiar passage, Luke 24, uh, as he and the disciples, a couple of disciples walking along on the road to Emmaus, and they're talking about all that just recently happened with Jesus' death and, and his resurrection. And Jesus says to them, O foolish ones, slow of heart to believe all the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. So Jesus is showing these disciples, kind of kind of rekeying, reworking their understanding of the Old Testament, showing how it's pointing to him, pointing to his ministry. And I won't leave this just uh, except uh, by referring to, uh, without referring to Matthew in his gospel. Matthew wrote specifically with a Jewish readership in mind. And Matthew loves to show how things that happened in Jesus' ministry were fulfillments of Old Testament prophecies and promises. In fact, the expression to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, whoever, or just the prophets, occurs six times in Matthew's gospel, and some wording similar to that occurs more. But six times he says, Matthew wrote this to show, or this was done, Jesus did this to show this was fulfilled by the prophets, you know, quote some, some scripture and say this was, this is what Jesus did, fulfill this prophecy. Why? Because he's wanting to show his Jewish readers that this is not something totally new, a complete novelty, but in fact has continuity from the Old Testament into what is happening now in the life and ministry of Jesus. And so that's why Paul says here in Romans chapter one, this is what God promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. Now, what do we do with that? Uh, what do we do with that passage? Well, let me give you just three things to think about uh, in response to this. First of all, let this encourage you as to the truth of the gospel. The, this fulfillment serves to confirm the truth of the gospel, that these prophecies made so long before, many of them in exquisite detail, 
you know, read Psalm 22, a passage like Isaiah 53, and others, made in such detail and then fulfilled so amazingly, serve simply to confirm that this is God at work, that this is the genuine work of God. This is the true gospel that we are called upon to believe and to follow. And the fact that it was promised so long before and now is fulfilled in such great detail simply serves to confirm that this is true, that this is real, that this is what God is doing. Second thing to, that this helps us to, to remember is to recognize that redemption through Christ was God's plan all along. That this was not something that caught God by surprise when the Jews rejected Jesus and murdered him, and God said, well, you know, we need to do something with this. Let's, let's pull out plan B and make the best of it. No, not at all. Genesis 3, Christ is the seed of the woman who crushes the head of the seed of the serpent. It goes back before that. Revelation 13 refers to Jesus as the lamb who was slain from before the foundation of the world. This helps us to understand that the Bible is, 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 of, is of a piece. That there's a unity there. That God begins working with entry of sin into the world and into our hearts. And he is working out his purposes. And it all fits Together, it's all part of one work of God's grace, not not piecemeal, not at every turn something goes wrong and trying to uh, to put out fires and make the best of it. But this is God's plan all along. Salvation for all who believe, Jew and Gentile alike, in Christ Jesus. But then a third thing to think about is before we leave this passage, where Paul refers to the Old Testament in this way in the Prophets is that we ought always to read the Old Testament with an eye toward Christ. Now, sometimes there's a very direct connection. Uh, Isaiah 53, Psalm 22, Micah 5, Out of you, Bethlehem, will come for me one who will be ruler over my people. Well, those are fairly direct prophecies of Christ. Some are maybe a little more indirect, in that we might, might read them and not immediately think of Jesus, but they do point to him. Hosea 11.1, 1, out of Egypt I called my son. Talking about Israel, who had come out of Egypt as God had delivered them in the Exodus, and yet Jesus himself, uh, in some ways that remarkably parallel Old Testament Israel's existence himself, went down into Egypt fleeing for his life, for his parents taking him, and then he comes out of Egypt and, and returns to Nazareth. And that is seen as a fulfillment of that of that verse, Hosea 11.1. 1. So a little more indirect, but nevertheless, the scriptures tie that to Christ. But what about other passages where we look at it and we think, I don't see how, how this can apply to Christ. For example, on Sunday nights, we're studying the book of Judges. And you think, well, how does Judges point to Christ? Well, it does. I think in, 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 in more ways than just this, but certainly in this way. Judges demonstrates, if it demonstrates nothing else, the very sinfulness and fallenness of our hearts and the power of sin to turn us toward our sin, even in the light of God's goodness and mercies and grace, except by his action, except by his grace. In other words, judges and passages like judges point to the need for Christ because our hearts are sinful and they are fallen. So anytime we come to the Old Testament, we need to keep an eye on Christ and say, how does this point? Maybe directly and clearly, maybe somewhat indirectly, or maybe only in a very roundabout way by showing us our need for a Savior. As we come to the scriptures of the Old Testament, how does this promise Christ? 
Now, we're glad we have the New Testament. We need the New Testament. It helps us understand more of the New Covenant. But remember, when Peter stood up and preached on the day of Pentecost, he preached from the Old Testament, and 3,000 people were converted and believed in Christ. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your Bible, the whole Bible, now Old and New Testaments that we have. And Lord, while we recognize that some things have changed because Christ has come, uh, yet the Old Testament still has great value to us in many ways. And Father, we thank you that the gospel uh, wasn't something that started uh, just with Jesus coming into the world or even with Paul and his writings, but uh, goes way back and that this was your grace and your plan all along. Father, we thank you for it. We thank you for the amazing ways that uh, you brought your purposes about in this world, even at times when all, all seemed lost. And thank you that this is your work. And Lord, just as you fulfilled your promise to send Jesus the first time, you've promised that he will come back. You kept your promise, Lord. He came the first time, though people waited so long. Lord, we wait. And yet we know, because you were faithful that Jesus will return. And Lord, we look forward to his glorious appearing. And by your grace, may we be prepared for it. We ask it in his name. Amen.